Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 4, Episode 2, The End of Excitement. Patliputra, the great city, the centre of ancient Indian life, stretching back almost as far as history itself. Something happened in Padliputra after the Gupta Empire left. After the Imperial Guptas shrank back to the east, the great city became, well, let the tourists explain it. A Chinese monk passed through the area during the height of the Gupta Empire and he described the city. He said the palace of Ashoka was still standing, and it seemed just as it did in days of old. It was so finely crafted, the monk said. The inlaid sculptures were so fine that it was obvious that no human could have built it. Human hands just weren't capable of such fine work, so it must have been made by spirits. And the monk went on to say that the community around the city was thriving. The townsfolk were prosperous and generous and good-souled. And they had great festivals where the whole city would come together and celebrate, where the poor would be given free medical services. And just outside the city, there was a community of Buddhist monks, 600 monks or more. So, at the start of this series, Padliputra seems to be the place to live, the thriving cosmopolitan heart of the world, its ancient grandeur still very much intact. But by the end of this series, everything has changed. At Padliputra, the festivals were no longer celebrated. The hospitals had shut up shop. In fact, there weren't any hospitals left at all. The buildings had disappeared. Another Chinese monk passed through and he tells the tale. The city was gone. The fine walls disappeared. The ancient palace, the one so fine that humans couldn't have built it, no sign of that. There was nothing there except for the foundations of the walls. The stub of a great city. And the place, said the monk, had long been deserted. And it wasn't just the city itself. It was the land around it. It was Mogda. The great walled cities of the, of the area were emptied. People lived now in the towns up in the uplands, and the river, the Ganga, was untamed. It flooded large tracts of land, and in the rainy season the people were forced to get around by boat. What had happened here? Why had this thriving, busting centre of North Indian life died such a sudden death? Well, in this episode, we're going to start to find out. Last episode, we met two kingdoms. In Padliputra itself, the later Guptas, and upstream in Kanauj, the Malkaris. Both had been vassals of the Gupta Empire, their kings had answered to the Gupta Emperor. And when the Gupta Empire failed, when the Emperor disappeared, in their own ways both tried to establish themselves as the new empire in town. Both were more or less independent, and when we left them last episode, the two were at a sort of uneasy peace. There were marriage alliances tying them together, but their interests were starting to push them apart. And in this episode, being pushed apart is exactly what's going to happen. The two kingdoms will soon be fighting up and down the banks of the Ganga. We'll hear the story of their two wars, their stratagems, and the fall of the later Guptas. And for the people of Patliputra, that meant the move 
the steady move of political power away from their city, upstream to Kanaj. In short, it meant the beginning of the end for the city. Ready? Let's get going. The last Gupta emperor is dying, far to the east. On the banks of the Ganga upstream, two kings are eyeing one another. Can I call them the Prince King and the Lord King? The Prince King was the king of the later Guptas, and he ruled in the city of flowers, Patliputra. His name was Kumara Gupta. Kumara means prince, although here it's a reference to the war god. Gupta... Gupta doesn't mean he's a relation to the Gupta emperor. Loads of people were called Gupta, but he is trying to become an emperor in his own right. The Lord King is king of the Malkaris, an ancient family, and he ruled upstream in the city of hunchback maidens, Kanauj. His name's Ishana, Lord means, although here it's a reference to Shiva. And he's also trying to become an emperor in his own right. And in fact, his father has already done some of that work. His father had thrown off the overlord, become independent, and named himself Maharaja Adiraja, great king of kings, a title fit for an empire. All they needed now was an empire to rule. And these two kingdoms, they had quite a lot of common. Maybe too much. They both had that ambition to become emperor, and that meant ruling the same land, the core territories of northern India, the centre of the Ganga Valley. So far, the two kingdoms had been allied, tied by marriage. The two kings had been first cousins, and in fact also first cousins once removed. But those ties wouldn't keep the two kings together for long. Soon there'd be an explosion of fighting, and the spark seems to have been a fight over an upstart kingdom far away. It was way downstream from both kings, in Bengal, where the Ganga meets the sea. There was this new power emerging, we alluded to it briefly last week. And in previous generations, the later Guptas had confronted this new power and pushed them back away from the coast, back into their homeland. This was downstream. The later Guptas were the downstream guys. It was their job. But the upstarts had come out of their lands again. They had defied the order of the later Guptas. So this time, the Malkaris decided to sort them out. The Malkaris took an army downstream, past the Prince King and the later Guptas, all the way to the coast, where once again they threw the upstarts off the land, and they kept them confined to their own territory. Seems like a minor thing, but it might well have put the Prince King's nose out of joint. Maybe it's a little hard for us to see why that's so offensive, Think about the world they're living in. I mean, obviously there's the fact that the Malkari army marched right through the Prince King's territory. But there was still this fiction that there was a Gupta empire. Still a fiction that they both served an emperor. The emperor himself was powerless or had just died. But in the mind of the later Guptas, everyone was still citizens of the Gupta empire. And the later Guptas were just caretakers, taking care of the empire whilst emperors gathered themselves. And these upstarts down by the coast, they were attacking the Gupta Empire. So the later Guptas were doing their job and defending it. But that was the job of the later Guptas. 
the people taking care of the empire, not the job of the Malkaris, who had asserted independence. Or at least so guess some historians. They say the two kingdoms both fought that same upstart down by the sea, and that's certainly true, and they both tried to put it back in its place, and that seems as likely a thing as any to get the two kingdoms attacking one another. Whatever lit the fuse, the situation was anyway set to explode. Two kingdoms on the rise competing for the same thing. And explode it did, with a great war erupting between the Prince King and the Lord King along the banks of the Ganga. But it was actually a most peculiar war. The king who won the war died for it. The Prince King set out with his army from Pataliputra to conquer the Lord King. At the head of his armies, he was known to be a leader in battle, known for his personal strength, probably a pretty good warrior himself, or so say the inscriptions. The two armies fought. Usually you don't really get a description of how the battle went, but this time you get something approximating that. There's an old, well-worn legend that says that once the gods and the demons worked together, they had a job, and that was to churn the great ocean of milk difficult to churn an ocean, so they used as a stirring stick a mountain, sat on a great tortoise, who was the god Vishnu, and they took the lord of snakes and they wound him round the mountain. The asuras grabbed the head, which seems like an odd choice to me if you're going to grab a snake, but there you go, and the gods grabbed the tail. They pulled to and throw the snake king up and down, winding the mountain, spinning it round. The sea of milk foamed and frothed. Great waves rose up. The rocks of the mountain spun round and round. The trees of the mountain were shaken apart, and everywhere a great foam erupted. And churning the ocean of milk produced poison and chaos. But eventually, the gods and the demons got what they wanted. The nectar of immortality. They fought over it. Chaos ensued and a hundred stories spin out of this one. The inscriptions say that the battle between the Prince King and the Lord King was a bit like the churning of the Milk Ocean. The Prince King's later Gupta army wound around the, 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 the mountain of the army of the Malkaris. Great waves produced by the Prince King's army surrounded them. The humongous elephants of the enemy were spun round and round like the rocks on the mountain. The whole thing happened with such vigour and such intensity that a great dust erupted like foam. It's a beautiful analogy. Whether it had anything at all to do with how the battle actually played out, that's another matter. My guess is it's actually a sly reference to the chaos that broke out after the battle. Anyway, when the Milksy settled... The Prince King was the victor. Potliputra had won. But then, the strangest thing happened. The Prince King travelled to Prayaga. It's the hometown of the earliest Guptas. It was a holy city. It was a place of pilgrimage. But the Prince King wasn't a pilgrim. Not in any ordinary sense. When he got to the holy city, he dressed himself up in flowers. He had some dried cow dung taken and piled up. He set fire to it. And as anyone who's ever been to India knows, it burns rather well. Then the Prince King jumped into the fire. Just jumped right in, as if jumping into a swimming pool. 
He died. Why? After all, the prince-king had won. No clues are given in the ancient texts. One historian guesses that the prince-king had made a vow, a vow to completely obliterate his enemy, and he'd failed to completely obliterate them, and so he killed himself. Maybe. The inscriptions do say that he loved truth. Other historians say that, actually, the victory wasn't really as convincing as the story of the milk sea makes it out. And actually, the prince-king didn't even win the control of the city where he died. That when he went on that pilgrimage, he was stepping into enemy territory. So actually, he must have been defeated. If I'm honest, both of those explanations for this death seem pretty dubious to me. Perhaps the prince-king's killing himself and the prince-king's victory were unrelated. We just don't know. All we have in the text is one thing following another. We don't know how long it was between the two events. So this first war between Padliputra and Kanauj ended with mystery and confusion. The prince-king of Padliputra won, but the king who was left standing was the lord-king of Kanauj. Padliputra and Kanauj still struggled, still wrestled for supremacy. The prince-king's son took over the fight from his dead father. There was another round of battles. Again, he set off from Patliputra with his army. And again, it seemed like all was going well. Just as before, the enemy elephants were broken up. But then, disaster. The new king of Patliputra died. He was killed there on the field of battle. There's some rumour that he was only unconscious, like the king from this tale a couple of episodes ago. But this isn't just a tale, this is history. The king was really dead. And the thought that he wasn't is based on a mistranslation. Quite who won the battle is a bit of a mystery. Most historians think that the, somehow the later Guptas won, even though they lost their king. What does this tell us about the character of these two rival kingdoms? Actually, some historians say that they weren't really rivals. Some historians say that the later Guptas are actually much more minor than we think. They weren't serious contenders. They were just a nuisance to the Malkaris. There's at least a little bit of truth to this. The Malkaris are much more formidable. They've got much greater prestige. The later Guptas, they came from a relatively unknown family. All we know about them is they have good descent. But what that descent is, we haven't got a clue. The Malkaris... They were born in legend. They could trace their history back all the way to the beginning of records and beyond. And Malkari just seemed to get more respect. A couple of generations later, a Malkari king is said to be chief amongst the Kshatriyas, worshipped by all the other warrior kings, revered like the footprint of Shiva. Now, granted, it says that in an inscription of that king, so it might be exaggerating, but there are other clues too. At this time, the Malkaris are producing many more coins. In fact, there's not much left to us of the later Guptas, but some grand words and inscriptions. People in other sources talk about the Malkaris, but very rarely mention the later Guptas. 
this picture that the later Guptas were not really contending that they were just a few remnants of the Gupta Empire and the Malkarias were really a serious force, it's very tempting. You can see how it might have happened because the later Guptas are called the Guptas because they occupy Patliputra. We tend to think of them looking back as more important than they were. But let's slow down on this. The later Guptas and the Malkaris faced off in battle. And the later Guptas won, at least once, quite probably twice. It was only the dogged tenacity of the Malkaris that they kept on coming that meant the later Guptas were still in trouble. If that doesn't sound to you like two rivals, I don't know what would. Sure, the later Guptas were the underdogs, but they still gave a good bite. But the later Guptas were about to fall. A new Gupta king arose, son of the previous one. His name was Mahasena Gupta. It's the last name I'll subject you to, I promise, at least in this episode. His name means Great Army Gupta, and it's a, a nice name. And you might also say it's somewhat of a reality. He had a great army. He was a great general. At least it started out that way. I imagine that Great Army Gupta took a step back and saw the big picture, saw the way the winds were blowing. There were these repeated blows, blow after blow, from the Malkaris upstream. And each time they faced in battle, the Malkaris were defeated. But each time, the later Gupta kingdom was becoming weaker. It was becoming harder and harder to fight off the enemy. That story sounded familiar. It sounded a lot like the Gupta Empire. They also ruled from Pataliputra, and they also suffered blow after blow from, from upstream, or at least from the west. The Huns rather than the Malkaris. But each time the Gupta Empire got weaker, and each time it was harder to push the, the Huns away, the enemy away. Until, finally, the Gupta Empire became so weak that it disappeared entirely. And I imagine that Great Army Gupta sat there thinking, how can we do things differently? How can we not end up like the Gupta Empire? And then he saw something that he could do that the Gupta Emperors never could. He could surround his enemy. He sent off for an alliance with the kingdom, the other side of the Malkaris, the other side of his enemy. In fact, he sent his sister to marry into the royal family there. It was a fateful choice, as we'll find out in a few episodes but it was brilliant, at least in the short term. This was the classic ancient Indian strategy. This is what you read in the ancient Indian strategy books. Your enemy's neighbour is your friend. Make an alliance with them, and then your enemy's stuck. They can't come and, and attack you because that will leave them exposed on the other side, and your ally will just invade their back. Rarely in ancient Indian history is this strategy carried out so clearly, so successfully. So the later Gupta king was causing the Malkaris trouble. Actually, the Malkaris also seemed to have had trouble of their own. Their old king, the Lord King, he was a tremendous force. He was powerful. He pushed for Patliputra again and again, but he also did other things. He defeated the Lord of the Andras down to the south and also some unknown king. 
And don't forget, he beat up the upstart in Bengal. So he's a king who's able to throw his military might around left, right and centre and come out pretty much on top most of the time. It seems likely if he'd lived, he would have pushed again for Pataliputra. He would have found a way out of that trap, out of being surrounded by enemies. But he was dead and his heritors passed on. He had two sons. One rebuilt a temple to Shiva, and that's why we know about him. There's an inscription talking about him. But then that older son disappears from history. Later inscriptions have lists of the Malkari kings. He doesn't appear on them. He's never mentioned again. And this, think some historians, as the smell of a cover-up. A struggle between sons for succession, one murdering the other though perhaps we're being just a little bit too suspicious. It was pretty common for a son who didn't inherit to not get mentioned again. In any case, the Malkaris were just for now kept at bay. And with his upstream succored, the great army Gupta headed off downstream, heading in fact for the ends of India, for the land of the Red River, Assam. And there he defeated the king, and he was marked out in honour. Inscription about 50 years later says that they still sung his praises on the banks of the Red River. That was the peak for the later Guptas, the good times. And from there, things went downhill quickly. Great Army Gupta had misjudged things. He was thinking like it was the Gupta Empire. There was only one main enemy. But the Gupta Empire had gone and had released all of its little feudatory kingdoms, each now vying, like a handful, a fistful of of sticks, dropped, scattering everywhere, bashing into one another. Just isolating one of those sticks and making sure it was no trouble wouldn't mean the other sticks wouldn't bash into you. And that's exactly what happened. Pataliputra and Magda was bashed again and again from all sides. From the north, the Himalayas, A great king arose, and he came down into India, onto the plains, and started destroying things. The king would found a new empire, would introduce Buddhism to Tibet. Not going to tell his story here, because we've got too many stories in the air already, uh, but more on him in a special episode coming your way soon. Wasn't just the north. From the mountains to the south of India's, there was another enemy. Meeting them in a special, so we won't spoil it but he boasted of beating Magda, having it under his sway. Maybe that was a bit of an exaggeration, a bit of a boast. He also claims to have conquered Kalinga and Arya and Varya, but at least there seems to have been an invasion force, a raiding force attacking Pataliputra, putting pressure on great army Gupta. It wasn't just the north, it wasn't just the south, it was also the east. From there, in the delta where the Ganga met the sea, those new upstarts which were always causing trouble, were causing trouble again. There's another story of an empire in formation there, another worry for the great army Gupta. The old enemy, the Malkaris to the west, they must have looked like the easiest thing to handle. But even they started to encroach. Despite being surrounded, they started to gain control of villages on the edge of Magda. The later Gupta kingdom was being pounded from north, south, east, and even west. And eventually, it crumbled. 
We've got no record of exactly when the killing blow landed, but the great army Gupta king fled out of Pataliputra, out of Magda altogether, flying back to the land of his ancestors, back to Malwa, the tableland. But even there, he wasn't safe. Because even there, these little feudatory kings which had been kept under the Guptas were rising up and trying to make an empire for themselves. There was a local king who thought he was Samudra Gupta, thought he was the great conquering emperor of the Guptas. At least he used all the same titles of the great conquering emperor. And he pushed his weight around in Malwa, rolled through, took the great city of Malwa. The great army Gupta was pushed out again to a smaller city on the fringe of the territory. And there, in that small city, a month or more away from the city that he ruled, great army Gupta died. But even after the death of their king, his people had no peace. Even that smaller town, that smaller city, was taken from them by a succession of small kings. It was like crabs in a bucket, picking one another apart. And when one was weak, it was pulled down, submerged, and never seen from again. Or not quite never. That seems like the end of the story of the later Guptas. And in many ways it is. The later Guptas would never again rule Padliputra. In fact, they'd never again rule anything of much. But they've already done something which would have great effects in the future. Something we've passed over really quite quickly. A marriage. And they are about to do something which will have an even greater effect on history. A murder. A murder that would shape the future of Pataliputra and shape the future of the whole of India. But that's a story for a later episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. They say that Good journalism is balanced. It takes views from both sides. Well, they might say that, but I think it's nonsense. Take two twisted partisan views and you don't have a neutral, clear-sighted view. Two wrongs don't make a right. But actually, we're going to dabble in a bit of that nonsense, or at least the history version of it. We're going to take two partisan views and combine them. We're going to read some inscriptions about Malkari kings, inscriptions from the Malkaris papering over the bad points for sure. Then we're going to look at some inscriptions about some later Gupta kings, inscriptions from the later Guptas. Surprisingly nice about the Malkari kings, but probably papering over the gaps of the later Gupta kings too. We're going to read them side by side. Our excuse is that, unlike journalists, we don't really have any neutral in-the-middle sources. This is as clear as ancient history site gets. So first, we're going to read about the Malkari king that we skipped over, fell in the gap between the two episodes, and his son, the one who appears as the main character in this episode, Ishana Varman, the Lord King. And then we're going to continue the story of the processions of kings, but we're going to switch over from the Malkari inscription to the later Gupta inscription for the next generation, where we're going to look at great general Gupta, Mahasena Gupta. It goes... Like this. By him, the previous Malkari king, was begotten for the sake of martial power, 
the Lord of the earth, Ishvaravarman, whose soul was well disciplined and invoked the enemy of Indra in many sacrifices. Other kings, no matter how they tried, were unable to match his way of conduct. He whose deeds eradicated the very nature of the Kali Age and who equaled Yayati in fame. Skipping forward a bit to the next king. Ishanavarman is victorious. He who has ascended the lion throne, his feet bowed to by the rulers of the earth, after having vanquished the sovereign of Andhra, of whom the elephants counted by the thousands were passing triple fluid, after having routed in battle the Sulakas and their galloping array of innumerable horses, and after having made the Gaudas to give up the territory as their future destiny, as they had to take refuge at the ocean. And now switching to the later Gupta inscription for the next generation. From him, the previous later Gupta king, there was a son, the illustrious Mahasena Gupta, the leader among brave men, who in all the assemblages of heroes acquired a reputation for valour that stood in the foremost rank, whose mighty fame marked with the honour of victory in war over the illustrious Shustita Varman, and white as a full-blown jasmine flower or water lily, or as pure necklace of pearls pounded into little bits is still constantly sung on the banks of the Red River, the surface of which is so cool by the citizen pairs when they wake up after sleeping in the shade of betel plants that are in full bloom. Actually, I take it all back. Sometimes reading two partisan inscriptions is really nice. Everyone comes across as really wonderful and lovely and brave and courageous and all that stuff. Anyway, that's pretty much it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you have been enjoying the podcasts, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snail Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. There's a link in the description of the podcast. Catch you in a couple of weeks. Until then, have a great time, and take care.